0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hey folks, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stan Lee's A Trick of Light. From Stan Lee, the pop culture legend behind Marvel's Avengers, Black Panther, X-Men, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four and Iron Man comes a major publishing event years in the making. One of the last creative acts of this master storyteller, A Trick of Light, is the story of two teenagers, one born with extraordinary gifts, one discovering new powers. They come together to right the wrongs in the world. As new friends Nia and Cameron develop their powers and deal out reckonings, they draw the attention of of dangerous forces putting the future of the planet at risk. Set in Stan Lee's Alliances universe, A Trick of Light is packed with a pulse-pounding breakneck adventure and the sheer exuberant invention that have defined Lee's career as the creative mastermind behind the spectacular Marvel Universe. A Trick of Light by Stan Lee is on sale right now wherever books are sold. Learn more at HMH Books.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful.
1: Jade,
0: what a struggle, you know? It is incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded. What was really couple. there. And now here's your host, like Brad so. Listy. Just one day. person at just one time. Hello, everybody. <laughs> right. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. My name is Brad Listy. Here I am, talking into a microphone. It's good to be with you. I appreciate you tuning in. My guest today is R.O. Quan. Her debut novel is called The Incendiaries. It's available now in trade paperback from Riverhead Books. It is one of the most auspicious fiction debuts of the past calendar year. It's a national bestseller. And uh, it was great to meet her, great to talk with her and learn about her book, her approach to writing, and her life. All of it is fascinating, and all of it is coming up in just a bit. I do have some mail. The mail keeps coming in. A listener named John says Hi, Brad. I have flirted with Buddhism and meditation on and off, but the sheer amount of literature and information is overwhelming. I listened to your conversation with Brad Phillips in episode 564. And it was so grounded and insightful around the subject. Are there any particular texts, foundational and or modern, that you would recommend? Thanks for what you do. Signed, John. So, thanks, John. I'm not an expert at this. I'm not even really, in a classical sense, a Buddhist. I don't go to Buddhist temple. I've never been on some really extended meditation retreat. I would like to do it, but I can't accommodate that in my life with young children and so on. Uh, that said, I have read a lot of books about Buddhism and meditation, and I am a committed meditator for a long time. And I think dispositionally, which I've mentioned before, I am uh, always looking for the instruction manual. That's like what I'm looking for most of all as a reader. Like, where are the instructions? How do you do life? And Buddhist psychology appeals to me and seems sound. Uh, at the same time, i have to i have to say that i 'm not interested in anything dogmatic or any kind of magical realism i don 't care about deities or like fables or any of that stuff. but the basic nuts and bolts of how to deal with suffering as a human being in this life does appeal to me i 'm also super skeptical when it comes to people who present themselves as authorities uh you know authorities in this particular area I think there are a lot of hucksters out there and egomaniacs masquerading as gurus if I had to pick somebody who strikes me as authentically wise uh, and just an excellent writer like a genuinely great communicator slash writer on this topic I would say Thich Nhat Hanh he's written um, dozens of books if you want one that's like a really broad overview there's one called the heart of the buddhist teachings which is pretty rigorous but also accessible Pema Chodron is another, uh, excellent writer in this space. Tenzin Palmo is also really lucid. So you just got to kind of poke around. A listener named Tyler writes, Hey Brad, I just wanted to pop in and say how much your show still means to me. I've been listening for about four years, maybe five. I don't listen every week, but I've been listening a lot this summer. That said, I wanted to express something arbitrary. I can't believe you own a robot vacuum, which you refer to in the monologue to episode 593. The Brad Listy in my head, the Brad I think I know, is staunchly anti-robot. It really surprised me. It gave me pause. I just don't see you as a robot guy. I know this is all just silly, but it got me thinking about how badly I want to body check this robot that, I don't know, works, lives, at the big chain grocery store where I shop. This robot is like seven feet tall and has these fake googly eyes, and it's always in my way. I have never body checked it, but I have not wanted something so bodily and purely as to hurt this robot in many years. Your casual comment about the vacuum on this episode made me realize the extent to which I have a pure aversion to robots. I don't even know why I'm telling you about this. I don't even really think that robots will take over the earth. I just don't like whatever it is they represent. Signed, a fan forever, Tyler. So Tyler, I have a Roomba. Okay? It's a Roomba. It's like a hockey puck. It's not like a bipedal robot that's walking around my house with a vacuum cleaner. Hopefully this can uh, assuage some of your concern. I share with you. Uh, an aversion to robots. I don't, I get creeped out when these videos go around social media where these kids at MIT have invented like a robot dog that walks just like a golden retriever or some like bipedal humanoid robot that like can jump from the floor, like to a six foot platform with like superhuman strength or whatever. I think it's a slippery slope. I'm worried about the uh, misuse and abuse of robots for nefarious purposes by bad actors around the world, military and otherwise, I'm, r- I'm right there with you. But I don't have some giant robot in my house doing my housekeeping for me. Now, that said, if I'm being honest as a human being, the one place where I feel like there could be a crisis point for me as a consumer is if these kids from MIT invent a robot that does do full on housekeeping. Like you can buy a robot made for like 500 bucks and the thing will keep your house spotless. I will concede that I would consider that I would have to investigate it, but I feel like that is where I will have to make some serious decisions about how I feel about all of this. The, the Roomba that I have, which we call Eufy, you know, it's like this little hockey puck that is set to a timer and it like silently or very quietly like like motors about the house and vacuums and it works. And it was kind of a joke gift that I gave to my wife for Mother's Day because one of our friends was raving about it. So I hope that helps. Thanks to uh, John and Tyler for writing. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. That's the email address if you have something to say to me. Hey, folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career. Writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also The Funniest by a Country Mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. My guest today is R. O. Quan. Her debut novel again is called *The Incendiaries*. It's out there now in trade paperback. It is a national best-selling title, not too bad for a debut. And uh, just had a great conversation with her. Very excited to share it with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is R. O. Quan, and uh, that debut novel, one more time, is called *The Incendiaries*.
1: Like, I wanted to stay Christian. I didn't want to leave. Um it was it wasn't as the central pivotal loss of my life. It's divided my life into a before and after. Um and I think in a lot of ways that's that was what led to my writing this novel, The Incendiaries, is because I it was this profound loss that was also very difficult to communicate. Um, it wasn't legible. No one in my life when I left the faith really um really i couldn't really talk to anyone about how lonely i felt or how heartbroken i was um because almost everyone i knew was christian and ranged from like moderately christian to very christian
0: where were you on the scale at your peak
1: at my peak i mean i really did plan to become like a pastor or a missionary or um like a recluse in a cave i hadn't really thought through which of these options was was the most appealing but um i meant to devote my life to god i meant to devote my life to a service i'm like not a I'm not a chill person. Like no one's ever accused me of being a chill person. Um I think when I when I love something I tend to I tend to like really go for it. And
0: was this and what denomination of Christianity was this that you were involved in? So
1: I wasn't I was attending mostly non-denominational churches. Um it wasn't really I wasn't subscribed to subscribed to like any particular narrow ideology. I certainly didn't consider myself like strictly Catholic. Um Yeah.
0: Were you, were you speaking in tongues?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Catholics do that, too. A lot of Christians do. That's not that's not particularly um, unusual.
0: What, really? Yeah. I never saw it. Uh. My, my, but I mean, I, did, I haven't been to church since I was like 11, 12.
1: Yeah, I know a lot of, a lot of Christians.
0: Do you uh, look back on that and say, like, wow, I was really infused by the power of God? Or were you just like, was it like a placebo effect? Or you were going along because you thought that's what you were supposed to be doing? You know what I'm saying? Like how authentic... Do you view that experience in hindsight now that you've given up the faith?
1: I think I did. Um, I fully, I believed in what I was doing. I don't think you can unless, unless you, I mean, I don't think it would be this lasting or deep of a grief if I hadn't believed in what I was doing. Um, because I have a lot of friends who were, whose families were, or are practicing Christians in some way and they just never bought into it and they, and then they left and for them it's not this it's not this it's not this like gigantic hole they're carrying around because it was never part of them for me it was it was my life um i mean clearly the incendiaries is not autobiography, you know like I myself have not been part of any violent extremist cults like i good to re- know <laughs> super haven't like blown up any buildings like that's not none of this is in my past um but the parts that are the most emotionally autobiographical are um, are are the parts where, where the central narrator, Will Kendall, um, is talking about his loss of faith. Um, and there's a line that I gave him that felt very very true to my own experience, which was he says that it's like what people say about bankruptcy: it happens gradually and then all at once. Um, so that was what it felt like for me. It felt just like there was a mounting pressure. Of questions that not only couldn't be answered, i didn't need answers um, but couldn't be accommodated couldn't fit inside the belief system that I was ascribing to, so there was no like dramatic event it was it was just a steady, slow accumulation of questions that I could not ignore
0: and from what were the questions derived, just like personal experience, just like they they pop into your head and they start to just you know nag at you a little bit
1: yeah, I mean, um I think a lot of people who leave christianity in its various forms um leave for similar reasons and so it was things like just like really broad questions like why are there other all these other religions that people a lot of which a lot of i mean and like a lot of people believe very fervently in their own religions um and these these do not look to be compatible if you are saying if christianity is telling me there is one god there's one christ you need to be saved by christ otherwise you're damn to hell, Um, that's, that's, that's very different than, that cannot accommodate the existence of other faiths, basically. Um, There was that, the dinosaur situation, the fact that they're like evolution. (laughs) Um, I was also, I was always, um, of course, like I was, I was always a big reader and spending so much time inhabiting the heads of people um, who did not believe what I believed it became increasingly difficult to be, to then just really take on faith that everyone who didn't believe what I believed um, was quite possibly down to hell.
0: And that's what the, that's what you were being taught.
1: Yeah, especially in um, and my it, it's it's interesting because my um, well one interesting thing is that my my mother is a woman of great faith. Um, the church is her life. That said, she has like such a liberal. Um, more open interpretation of things. So she believes essentially that like if you're a good person, if you're trying to be a good person, then you're probably going to heaven. Um, I think, I I, I think like she really loves dogs, I feel as though she's she's pretty much she's pretty much convinced that like dogs are going to heaven too because like why would you leave dogs out of heaven like who would do that <laughs> it doesn't make any sense and,
0: and they're going to go before we are <laughs> I not. know
1: like they're 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 <laughs> they're the kindest um, and so um, so what I was hearing from my my family wasn't wasn't about like exclusion and punishment um, but in the in these ecstatic charismatic churches that I was attending. Um, the the theology was much more, much more restrictive.
0: Was there a dark side? Like, did you ever sense any kind of menace inside or like griftiness or anything like that?
1: I mean, not really. I I was, I was a kid. Um, it was, this is, this is something that I really tried to, I hope to convey, um, in the incendiaries is I think a lot of people who haven't really experienced faith, um, or have only experienced it a bit when they were kids and hated it, like i think it leaving it did not feel like a jailbreak it did not feel like a liberation um i loved it like i was i was so i walked around feeling as though i was in a state of grace i walked around like trying to love everyone i met because christ was shining from each face like i walked around just like feeling like full of love and light um in a way that is very different from how i move through the world now
0: how do you move through the world now
1: um i'm I'm like an anxious person. I think a lot of I think a lot of writers are. Um
0: I don't know what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> um, I think about death all the time. Um it it's still I'm still like just like appalled that we have to die. I think because like I until I was 17, I just like truly thought everyone I loved was going to live forever. Like death did not exist in my world, not the way it does now. Um and so it's like a running joke in my in my household, um except it's not really a joke. Like anytime my husband like leaves the house, like I'll just be like, watch out for cars. Um, don't fall and hit your head. Don't die. <laughs> um, if you die on me, I'm going to be so pissed off. Like, it, like I, I, like I'm like, I'm, I'm just like, I'm, it, yeah, like the the safety structures. So many of this, the biggest safety structure I grew up with is gone. Um, right. The idea I had of this all powerful omniscient deity who was watching over everything and cared about every detail of my life gone. And so um so yeah, instead I'm just very anxious and sad.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so you talk about the I love that line about bankruptcy, you know, how it, it what is it, slowly and then all at once.
1: Yeah, gradually and then all at once. Yeah. So
0: what about uh the all at once? Like what was what was the all at once?
1: Um it felt as though it was just one day I realized I didn't believe anymore. And there's a scene in which will um In the novel, he prays for the last time to God, and he just like asks for help. Um, And that too was very much what I did. Um, But it was as though you know what it felt like. Um, I've been thinking about this. Metaphor more recently. Um, it felt a little as though. You know, like in zombie movies, um, how there'll be like one person on one side of the door, and then the, and there are like ten zombies on the other side, and then there are like twenty, and then there are fifty because the zombies are flocking, and you can feel them all trying to push the door down. You're like, that door is not going to hold, man, dude, you're so going to fucking die. <laughs> like, and it's really stressful. That was what it felt like for me, but with like doubts and questions and and all these things that were just like jamming up against a door that I was trying to keep shut in the minute. Um I let the door open a crack. The zombies all came in and it was over. You got eaten. Yeah. <laughs> I got zombified. Yeah. No, no,
0: were there uh, are there books, like specific books that you can point to that you read that had a, a big impact on your thinking and pushed you in this direction? Or Not was it really. just
1: a... I mean I was reading I was reading so much. Um I yeah, that was There was no there was no like single novel or nonfiction book or book of poems or whatever that I can point to point to as saying like that. That triggered. Th- so there's there's really no one event I can point to as being sort of a triggering event.
0: So where are you now? Are you like an atheist? Or are you uh, an agnostic?
1: Um, I'm agnostic. I call myself agnostic. Um, I'm allergic to. I think part of what, our religious past um, that that felt so profound and that felt so real to me. What that's left me with um, is an allergy to certainty. So I would never say that I'm an atheist. I'm an agnostic. I like. um but I'm also so allergic to certainty that I'm, that I'm like a, suspicious of that s- sentence itself. Like that's a certainty. Being allergic to certainty, right? Like and so, um, yeah. I, I prefer. I love what Cortazar, Cortazar said. Um, he said something about how he's on the side of the questions, and I feel as though that's where I am. And that's also what I love about fiction too. Fiction, the fiction I love is not trying to find like easy answers. Um, the fiction I love is far more interested in hanging out with the unknowing, with the with with, yeah, with, with the mysteries. I am allergic to certainty, at least in my own head, I'm allergic to certainty about fiction as well. And so I like to, at least like when I, when I talk to writers who are working on, um, who are working on something, I I try to stay very, I try to cue very closely to the side. Um, I still want to stay with uncertainty, even about what people are doing with their writing. And so I usually just tell people, you know, like, Fiction is a house with many rooms. Um, it can accommodate a lot of different books. And so I try to I try to keep that open. But with my own writing, I would say that with my own writing, I'm very much interested in staying on the side of the questions.
0: You're, you're just like, you're like, I am uncertain about it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel yeah. that. I think that's a good way to be. I mean, there's a humility in that.
1: Well, and it's also just... Um, I feel as though it if I start feeling certain about what fiction should be doing. I feel as though that is immediately cutting me off from other possibilities. Um and you know, the I worked for ten years on the incendiaries. Um, really hope the next book doesn't take as long. And I I want to write more books. Um I like I I hope to write until I die, um, whenever that is. And and I, you know, I very much want my fiction to to I don't want to just keep doing the same thing. I want to and so that I think I want to stay open because that in part, because I think it would hurt my fiction if I, if I closed off.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, you want to stay like creatively open to possibilities.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So how did your parents and your family respond? Like, how did you make this announcement or did you make an announcement? Did you say, Hey, um, I just gotta let you know the zombies one that came in and devoured me and I'm done. Like, yeah. How did they respond?
1: It was, you know, um, as I said, my mother's a woman of great faith. Um, we're very close. I'm sure she'll listen to this. It's very endearing. Like she listens to every single one of my. Hi, mom. Like, <laughs> she listens to all of it. She reads all the interviews. She reads all the reviews. She's like she's like all over the internet. She stalks my Instagram. It's it's <laughs> extremely endearing. Um, but she is a woman of great faith, and she essentially believes that she will pray me back into the fold by like Wednesday. Maybe, like, Thursday. That's that's the time frame she has in mind. That's sort
0: of how my mom is. Like <laughs> my, parents, my parents still are, like, you know, at church every Sunday.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I do understand where my mother's coming from um, in that, well, Christianity, I mean, the Bible, like, Christ says over and over... Um, granted I, I try to be careful in how I talk about the Bible um because I know a lot of people have different readings of the bible um so okay the bible the Bible is a vast capacious often self contradicting document um it's huge it's full of it's full of thoughts
0: Have you read but, it but
1: oh yeah of course like, like, like
0: but I mean like read the book like you read a book or you just have like over over the years heard like
1: a... oh no i um i I've, I've read it and reread it, and while I was writing the incendiaries um I was reading and rereading the Bible. I was reading a lot of religious thinkers. Like I love Simone Bale. Um so yeah, I I I love to engage with the loss. Um, I think because in so many ways it still it still plagues me every day of my life. You know, it's 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 such a gigantic part of it informs everything I write. Um I mean of course the incendiaries is like soaked through with shot through or soaked through and mixing up metaphors, um, with the loss of God and with that grief. Um, but everything I write is like, even the most, uh, unrelated seeming nonfiction piece, um, in some ways it's in there and it's never not what I'm writing about. Um, so yeah, I was reading the Bible a lot.
0: And, um, do you find like in the absence of, um, Now that you've lost that sort of like safety net that you talked about, Mm -hmm. have you tried to replace it with anything? Do you have Mm -hmm. other coping mechanisms that Mm -hmm. you've kind of brought to the fore to try to help you deal with the trials of life?
1: Yeah. Um, It's funny. I was at an event uh, last week and one of the questions someone had was just like, I think I talk freely about anxiety. Um, I'm totally happy to. On social media, and one of the questions was just like, "How do you deal with your anxiety? Can you tell us?" (laughs) Um, I, um, an interesting thing about anxiety, from for for me at least, um, is that it's. I feel as though it's a very good friend until it isn't. You know, like anxiety keeps me from, for instance. So, like, I hate, I, 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 I. it keeps me from, like, missing deadlines. Like, it keeps me – it makes me work harder. I think it makes me a better friend because so often, um, like, I'll go home from having hung out with a dear friend, um, and if we've had, like, three drinks, then, like, I'll wake up the next day and I'll just be like, oh, my God – when I said that thing, I feel as though the air kind of shifted. I swear I saw like a micro- microscopic change on my dear friend's face. She must be angry at me, and I'll send her an apology text and she'll just be like, What the fuck, dude? Like, everything's great. <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful to see you. Um, but I would so much rather be air on the side of being that concerned rather than just be like a totally chill, like, I can say what I want, do what I want. Um, I can turn things in late. Nobody will care. It's fine. Like, I don't want to be that kind of a person. Um, I don't
0: either. And I think type A people make the world go round. Um, I'm glad that not everybody's type A. Like, we need a mix. But people who, um, like, I was talking to somebody and they're like, you know, you want your neurosurgeon to be type A. Mm. You don't want him to come in or her to come in and be like, Hey, well, whatever, you know, sorry, I'm late, yeah, uh, let's get you under anesthesia. um you know, I just took some c b d oil you know I, I think you need people to be on their game, but um, I think recognizing it in yourself is the first step towards making sure it doesn't you know consume you,
1: yeah, and I think um in a lot of ways i mean i I mean, in a lot of ways, writing is so hard. I find it to be very difficult. I know everyone does. Um, every writer does. I also, when I'm deep in it, um, when I'm just like really hanging out with the sentence and absorbed in the work, um, I really do, there there, there are parts where um, Phoebe, the woman who falls into a cult in the incendiaries, where she talks about when it she, she used to she used to think she could be a piano prodigy. She was very serious about the piano as she's growing up. Um, and there are parts where she talks about how when she was playing the piano, like, at her best, she really did lose all sense of herself. Um, and that's how I feel when I'm writing. If, if I'm, if when it's going well, which isn't, which doesn't happen all that often, um, when I'm just really in it, I lose all sense of myself. I forget I have a self. Um, I lose all sense of ego. I lose all sense of time. Um, and I'm just there with the work, but, like, not as me. And it's, and it's the most joyful feeling I know. Um, It's the best thing. Um, And so writing does a lot for me. Reading does a lot for me. Um, Those are two I turn to a lot. There are also ways in which it's, I mean, it's a consolation prize. It doesn't make up for what I lost at all. Um, But there are ways in which knowing, not knowing, believing now that Every joy has an end. Um believing, I believing as I do believe that everyone I love I'm going to lose in some way or another. Um it does make the joy sharper. Like it makes the it makes the joy joy when it's there. It makes the love when it's there. I feel it so acutely because I can also feel the eventual loss. Like I'm aware of that. And so I I do really take great satisfaction in the moments when I am when I am really glad, um, when I am euphoric, when, when I'm having a night with dear friends, I love and just wishing and just wishing like we could keep doing this. Um, the knowledge of the end makes me appreciate the moments a lot more.
0: That's great. And I mean, that's kind of, uh, I think that's like the, the upside of death, Mm -hmm, (laughs) Uh, mm -hmm. you you know, to, and to, to, and to think about it. I think the, there's value in considering death every day, like not to an excessive degree Mm -hmm. where it's, you know, it's stifling your ability to function or something, or Mm -hmm. that it's making you super, super morose. But I think having a a very clear-eyed sense of the fact that this life anyway is finite Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. does make you prioritize, you know, like how you want to be while you're here Mm -hmm. and appreciate The people and the things that you appreciate Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so where do you what do you think happens when we die do you have a are you just uncertain there too um
1: i if i were to put money on it and if i could collect the money afterward i would i would i would be just be on the side of like we're an accumulation of cells and we um an accidental accumulation of cells and we're here for a while and then and then we're and then we're gone and we return to the earth um um, that said, of course I leave space for uncertainty. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just like, that's probably what's going to happen. I don't know. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's so strange. Like I am agnostic. My daughter asked me if there's a God, I always say, well, what do you think? She goes, I think so. And then she says, well, what is God? And I'm like, it's everything. And I think like, as a parent, I'm always like, you either say it's God's nothing or God's everything. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? I'm not going to tell her there's, it's an empty universe and you're in the Mm -hmm. void. I mean, she's, she's eight, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but, uh, and if like, and the word God has just been, I think so misused and abused that it becomes empty of meaning.
1: I really, um, something that I do find to be fairly, um, calming is I love reading essays, and articles um, written for lay people about physics. Um, like I, I, really love like an essay. Like if there's like an essay in the New Yorker about like dark matter, I'm just like give it to me. Uh, <laughs> and I quantum love quantum
0: physics. Yeah, and... and I
1: love that physicists are always like we don't fucking know what dark matter is, man. Like we barely know what dark energy is. But we're just gonna talk about like what we do know about it, and it's incredibly mysterious. And like I love reading about how vast, um, how vast existence is, um, and how vast the universe is, um, and on what scale the universe exists. Um, in a lot of ways, I find that to be oddly, oddly comforting because then, then to remind myself like, Oh, I truly am a blip of a speck. Like that's what humans are. Um, I find that to be consoling when I'm angry or sad or whatever about whatever it is. I also love reading about um, mathematics, especially like higher plane mathematics where people are.
0: Do you understand that stuff?
1: No, but I love, that's why I love reading the pieces that are for lay people because then it's like, what? What? Like, because they're written um, for non mathematicians. Um, so, and yeah, I get, I do get very moved when mathematicians talk about how they're like, symmetries and harmonies out there, um, that they're, that they discover and that they're working toward and how they talk about like the elegance of math and how they're, and how beautiful it is. Like all of that just, yeah, that's, that's, that's my, that's, that's like fun reading.
0: Yeah, <laughs> no, I got to check that out. I mean, I feel like I'm such not a math person. I'm probably shy away, but it would be worth my while, especially mm-hmm. if somebody can Make it clear for somebody like me.
1: Yeah, and you, know, um, you know, someone who um writes fiction about mathematicians is um is Kathy Chung, Catherine Chung. Um, oh, yeah,
0: I've had her on the show.
1: Oh yeah, so she um she has, I think she majored in mathematics in college, um in Chicago, and then she became a writer. But so she she draws a lot of math into she talks about it in her in her fiction, and it's and I always like I always yeah, I love it so much. I love it when she does that.'re
0: like, oh, you're a brilliant fiction writer and I'm like a brilliant math mind.
1: yeah, and <laughs> congratulations
0: it's, on having it all.
1: Uh, well, and it's also <laughs> I feel as though because I feel as though there's a permanent paucity of um fiction that is being published in like right now about that that has any like real um science or math in it. Um, and I think that it, that's I feel as though that's in large part because like a lot of writers that wasn't our forte or that isn't our forte and so um and so like like i for instance don't know very much about math or science um other than what i studied in high school um but but when it does come up i'm always like yes
0: <laughs> help me more of this yeah. i love it <laughs> so let's talk about i want to talk about the writing of your book it's kind of like it's always heartening for me and i think a lot of listeners to hear about books that are very well realized and have, uh, managed to find a readership and if you know, you've gotten to kind of take the ride with this book. It's easy to think that it was sort of all there from the start or that, you know, you were privy to some sort of divine inspiration and it, you know, but this was a, you said a 10 year process. Mm-hmm. So talk about uh, how it came together.
1: Sure. Um, so I worked on it pretty much every day for usually for at least several hours a day. Um, for 10 years. And, and what it was, um, I love sentences. Um, I love syllables. I love punctuation. I can really just spend, like if I have a writing day, if I have the glorious opportunity of a writing day in which I I have like, say like seven hours to write. Um, if I spend those seven hours staring at two, three sentences, changing some words, moving around some commas, and then deleting two sentences and being left with one, like that was a really good writing day. You feel good about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I'm like, I just feel at the end of that, I feel really fulfilled. I'm like, I'm doing the work. I was fucking put on this earth to do. (laughs) What I really did was I moved around some goddamn commas. (laughs) And like that feels amazing to me. I love it. Um, That is that I found the hard way was less conducive to writing early drafts, um, of something as large as a novel. Um, and so I spent the first two years working on the incendiaries, um, just reworking the first 20 pages over and over and over again. For two years. Yeah. For two years. Um, I just, I had this idea that I needed the sentences to be exactly right. And if they weren't right, then the rest of it would be all fucked up. Um, you have like
0: OCD tendencies.
1: I don't have diagnosable OCD. Um I know I, I I shy away from saying that because I know people with um diagnosed OCD um find it hard when people talk casually about having about being OCD. Right. Um I um but I do find a, if there's a picture frame up and it's a third of a centimeter off the level that is unbearable
0: <laughs> I'm kind of that way.
1: Yeah. If a, if a drawer is just like a little bit open, I want to close cry. That fucking yeah. drawer. <laughs> I won't actually cry. I'll just like <laughs> jump up and, and close the goddamn drawer. Exactly. Um,
0: I like things to be neat. I think there is, I, I don't think there's anything to apologize for, for wanting to, um, take care of your physical environment. Like, I think it can be, I guess you can take it to extremes. Um, but wanting to live in a, in a nice space i think your external environment equals your internal environment is what i'm saying
1: um that's something that i've i've found to be very interesting about um how i've changed my living space especially the room in which i write um so in my apartment we have nothing on the walls there are no pictures no like printouts of other people's like writing just nothing it's blank what color um, are they they're like off white Okay. And most and most of our furniture is ranges from like there's like black, off white, and like some dark brown. Um, you've, got
0: some, you've got like kind of a goth aesthetic.
1: Um, so I also only buy clothes that are black. Um, and I'll, you have
0: the eyeshadow. Is, is it eyeshadow? Am I, it I,
1: is eyeshadow. Okay, because
0: yeah. you wear like eyeshadow yeah. under your eye. It's kind of like a unique look.
1: Yeah. Well, um, I started so so a few years ago. I read that Obama. Um, only has only had basically just like copies of three suits that he, that he cycled through and he and he said that it was because he was trying to take one decision out of his life. So he always knew he was gonna wear one of three suits. And when I read that I was like, oh that makes so much sense. Because um I also love reading like studies about like why we are the way we we are, like why we behave the way we do. And I'd been reading about decision fatigue and how when you have a lot going on, it can be really hard to like you your ability to make decisions decreases um you don't have an infinite ability to make decisions in a given day um so I just immediately switched to oh and i felt i felt like I felt kind of insulted because somebody um quoted this somewhere and they and they were like and they were like like,Aqua got this from Steve Jobs, and I was like, I would fucking never <laughs> <laughs> Jesus <Jeez laughs> Christ it was Obama like um <laughs> 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 uh, but i um I just uh yeah, it, it, it's just like paring away decisions, pairing away things I don't have to think of, making it so that I can spend as much of my brain as possible on my writing, um and less of it on like what I'm gonna wear. So I so whenever I ask myself like what I'm what am I gonna wear today, it's always like a black dress or like black jeans and a black shirt. Um and that just makes it that just makes it my life easier. Um or not easier, it just gives me more space to focus on the writing and the reading
0: and did this shift like because i of course like in my head i was leaping to like like a post is it, like post god Aroquan like are you in mourning is there like some sort of goth thing happening where you're like you know my god is gone and so i'm going to wear black now
1: no 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 i mean i um like in college i wore very colorful clothes um <laughs> i had a lot of i still have like some of those dresses um that i haven't given away yet because i'm just fond of them i should i should get rid of them but um i'm never gonna wear them again but um yeah so but that's also why i don't have things up on my walls because i realized i i don't like to have visual distractions either when i'm working and so we just have like a very stripped down apartment um where there's just not very much to look at and i like that like i never
0: it's like a blank page
1: yeah and if i'm and if i'm traveling so if i'm like in a you know like 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 last night i'm a, i'm i was in a hotel um and i was trying to get a little bit of work done i would never ever sit in front of like a window i would never ever sit in front of a view i would always want you walk into, the, just you like walk a wall. into
0: the, the hotel room and just start taking the pictures off the wall
1: <laughs> <laughs> i don't do that i just face away like i face away from the pictures like i move distractions um
0: Wow, that's kind of an aesthetic approach, though. But it's like it's like I get it. Like if, to get this work done is is so difficult, and these little things make a difference.
1: They really do. Um, and it's you know it's it's part of it's that the existing world is so vivid and so interesting, right? Um, and so I am trying to, to the extent possible. To have my fiction, when I'm working my fiction, I want it to be more alive to me than the world around me. Um, and so I also have a lot of rules in place um, when I'm writing about, like... So I try very hard to go straight from bed to coffee, and then from coffee, just I just take my mug to my laptop in the dining room, um, and I start working. And I try very hard to have no interruptions in there.
0: What time are you getting up?
1: Um, I often get up around... if, if When I have my time... Um, when I when nobody else is setting my time, um, I'm very nocturnal, so I have to go to sleep around like six or seven a.m. and I wake up around like noon or one. Oh wow! Yeah, I'm very nocturnal.
0: <laughs> so you get? I always up. say
1: I'm nocturnal. People are like, uh huh, uh huh, and I'm like, no. no I, so I go to sleep around like seven at dawn. Like I, you're up all night. Yeah, I'm. I'm often up all night.
0: Yeah, you're not. You're a night owl. That's your chronotype.
1: Yeah, I um I can feel the minute the sun goes down, I can feel my brain like pick up energy or like just like I come more alive. As yeah. soon as as soon as the sun's gone, uh,
0: I've been doing a lot of uh, sleep research for my day job. Oh wow! So I'm like I'm steeped in this, and all Ooh. I can say is that it, you are a night owl. If, I mean, if you're somebody who naturally stays up until six o'clock in the morning, yeah. Um, but I'm curious about the fact that you don't do work in the night because I feel like a lot of night owls tend to like night owl writers in particular tend to like love the night as their writing time. But
1: oh, you, I love that too. Oh, um, you do. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I figured out how I work best at artist residencies, where, of course, like, you just have to, like – oh, for people who don't know. So, artist residencies, um, they will – there are artist residencies all across America, and there are others outside of America, too, um, where they house you and feed you and even make your coffee, and there are a lot that are free, um, and – you apply to get in, and then once you're there, you, you you truly can like just like think about nothing but your work. Um, and that was where I realized that like I do best if I jump to my writing. That was where I realized that I do best if I can go to sleep like in the early morning rather than keeping the hours everyone else is keeping.
0: What do you do in the night, like from midnight until six in the morning?
1: Um, when the writing's going well, I'm writing and working. Um, I'm writing and reading, and I don't know, like sometimes just like playing a fun song and dancing around for a song or two. Like I I just, I'm doing the work. Um, when, when the writing is not going as well, um, I'm on the internet and like answering emails and fucking around on Instagram. And yeah.
0: So if you're working, let's say five or six hours in the night, and then you wake up at like noon and you go to the keyboard and work for like another three or four hours, like you're working a lot in a 24 hour day.
1: Yeah, but, okay, that's that's in an ideal world in which I'm not also doing other things and not not do, not doing other kinds of writing, not-
0: um, Do you have a day job or anything?
1: Not doing, so I was, and well, I'll, I'll be teaching again in the fall, um, but I wasn't teaching all of last year um, because as soon as the incendiaries came out, like I've been on the road a lot um, and I, w- I just wasn't able to, I could not responsibly have taught a class that taught that like met twice a week. Like that just wouldn't be possible. Um, so I've been on the road a lot. I, am thesis advising, um, at a graduate program in this fall and then this spring, I'm so excited about this. Um, i I have a one-term appointment as the Mary route chair at Scripps college. Oh, cool. Um, so not far from here and I'm going to be teaching, um, one undergraduate class once a week while I'm there.
0: Cool. And, uh, you said, I mean, I, I want to make sure we, we, like see this track through because uh I think it's important for people to hear but you spent 2 years working on the first 20 pages of the book. Yes. And then there were another 8 years. Yeah. With false starts um you know you went down paths that probably didn't lead you anywhere. Uh, did you ever come to a moment where you're like should I just quit doing this?
1: Oh yeah. And I um I think like I felt not terrible until like the five-year mark and then by the five-year mark i was just like what the fuck? <laughs> what am, I doing, what am I doing i kept just being like what am i doing with my life like i um and I, the, a recurring thought I had was, like, why didn't I become a dermatologist? Like, I love thinking about skin care. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I would not mean a great dermatologist. <laughs> I mean um, a great
0: dermatologist.
1: <laughs> um, but, but you know, I, there was a point around the five-year mark when I was at an artist, artist residency, um, and I just, like, opened up another document. I think I titled it, like, new novel. And I wrote one sentence, and I was like, should I just give up on this? And then I wrote one sentence, and I started at it, and I was like oh fuck like i still the the first novel still i'm I, like i i not only loved it i was fascinated by it like it kept i, I felt that i had to stay with it um so yeah, i went through like i don't even know i have no idea how many drafts this book went through it could have been 40 it could have been 80 it could have been more um, yeah that's a
0: really i mean uh, people always say they talk about their their drafting process and these like kind of very you know explicit what it was the seven drafts, eight drafts, but it's yeah. like if I, the way I've always worked, it's like who knows you're constantly noodling with the thing, could be a thousand drafts for all you know it's hard it's a hard thing to nail down specifically,
1: yeah, and there were a lot of um so one big detour I took, although I try not to think of anything as a detour i, I at the very least, I feel better if I tell myself that a book is a palimpsest and it contains all the ghosts of what it once was, and these ghosts feed the um the existing document but um I there was a point when I wrote like 100 pages from the point of view of um Phoebe's father so the father of the woman who falls into the cult um and that and her father so that whole storyline took place in 1970s South Korea um and after I after I wrote 100 pages of it I deleted it or not, or not deleted it I just like put it I just like took it out I was like this, this isn't working like this doesn't belong here um, so yeah there were, there was a lot of that like there there's so many There's so much I took out, and so much I reworked.
0: Well, and the book um, has multiple POVs, and that wasn't there from the start.
1: Yeah, so it was originally told entirely from Phoebe's point of view. Um, At the two-year mark, after I threw everything away, I realized there was something about Phoebe's point of view. So she, um, I'm not giving much away by, by noting that she both loses and feels that she gains a great deal um over a relatively short period of time and um so her experience of the world is relatively spiky like there are a lot of really re- really high highs and really low lows um and to me it felt a little cl- i felt a little um too constrained being in that being in in, in a perspective that was that contains such highs and lows and so i thought a lot about books that are narrated from the point of view of somebody who's not at the center of the action um and an obvious example about a book i love is the great gatsby which of course is narrated by nick carraway who like is like the least involved of everyone else of everyone in the book it's
0: like, per- like peripheral first person
1: yeah and so having um and so for years two to six that was when will kendall the man who loves phoebe and opposes the cult and much of what it represents um he started taking over the narration. Um, and I found that it just, like, let a lot more air into the book. Like, it let me... It meant that I could play with a lot more um, different registers. And then at year six, I sent the novel to um, to the woman who would become my agent, Ellen Levine. Um, and she thought that it, it just, like, it needed more of the cult. Um, and I found that I agreed with her. I would... I never... I never made a single change to the book that I didn't believe in. This is something I I try to tell writers. I think a lot of writers don't realize, like, um, you don't have to make a single change that you don't believe in. Like, it's your book. It's your writing. Um, But so I, let's see. So that was when John Leal's point of view, the cult leader's point of view, came in. And then at year, like, seven and a half, um, my agent was looking at the new draft that I'd sent her. And she was like, I just, I just, I do still feel as though there should be more of Phoebe and I was like, Oh God damn it. There were like two years of work. I, <laughs> I, I threw away, but I found that that, that meant that I did know a lot about Phoebe that perhaps wasn't making it onto the page. Um, and so, and I, again, I found that I wildly agreed with her. And so that was in Phoebe's point of view, started more explicitly coming into the novel. Um, and then we sold it to, or my agent sold it to, um, my editor at year 8.5 and then, with my editor, we um, revised it over the, over a span of time that amounted to about a year and a half.
0: Wow. So what was the sales process like? You go out with this thing after eight and a half years and did it go quickly? Did it take a while?
1: I, I don't, yeah, it, um, I mean, it was, it was harrowing for sure. I feel as though I've in a lot of ways utterly blanked out what happened because i was like i was in like such a state of like anxiety and fear <laughs> right. i was climbing a lot like um i love rock climbing i love bouldering and when i boulder that's one of the only activities i can do in this life that don't let me think about anything, even my writing. So oh, just you know,
0: like, did you go bouldering or rock climbing with Ingrid Rojas Contreras?
1: I did, yeah. Okay, so she and
0: I were talking about you. Oh, I, my
1: God. <laughs> <laughs> I took her. I love her. I'm going to see her, um, like, tomorrow. Um, oh, well, tell We're going her. to a writer's conference tomorrow- together.
0: Tell her I said hey.
1: Our books came out the same day. So she's been such a lovely um, – and we live in San Francisco. And, like, so we've just been, like – we keep just being in the same cities, the same festivals. Um, and she's, like – the she's like one of the best people I know. Like she's so lovely. She's such a, she's such like a generous, kind, badass woman. Um, and yeah, I've, I felt very fortunate to like have her as my like publication date buddy. That's, um, that's cool. Yeah. But So the book, the minute it sold. Okay. So, um, well I got, my agent called, I remember it was, um, it was in the morning, my agent called and emailed. Um, and then we talked on the phone for a short while. She explained to me that the book had sold. Um, and I hung up the phone and I, and then I, and then I just like sat down on the bed and I remember
0: you didn't take the call like while rock climbing, you're, like, <laughs> you're, you're clinging to the,
1: <laughs> I woke up and I saw that I had um, a missed call from her. And so I, of course I just like lunged at like whatever the voicemail was and then I called her. Um, but so, but you know, it's a moment that it's over the 8.5 year mark, um, selling this was a moment I've been fantasizing about for years and years and years, um, And I sat down. I felt genuinely happy for like 35 seconds. Um, And I know that it didn't. It wasn't more than a minute because the minute hand on a digital clock that I was staring at didn't change. I was happy for like 35 seconds. And then just like a new flood of concern started flooding. I mean, a new spate of concern started just like coming at me. Like I was like, okay, like what happens next? What's the editing process like? Like how do I like help this book? Like what am I even supposed to be doing? I don't understand anything. And like, and I just got ratcheted up to like a different kind of anxiety that never (laughs) actually really went away. Right. Um, and so I, I in a way, I find that to be very consoling, because something that so many writers told me, and I never quite managed to believe them, um, and I'm going to say it in case it helps anyone um, who's listening, and perhaps nobody will believe me either, but maybe they will. Um, I, there is no external validation that has ever felt nearly as good as what it feels like to just be in the work. That's right. You know, to put down a sentence, um, rework it and then look at it and think like, you know, that's actually what I meant to say. Like I, I managed to put down what I meant to say, but how wonderful, no? Because that, that that's available. Like the writing, okay. The joy and the elation with writing, that's not something you can just like, or for me, I can't just like grab it. But I know that if I keep showing up to the page, um, I may have like four bad days in a row, but maybe on the fifth day. I'll have like a good hour and that that one hour is everything.
0: It'll sustain you for like another week or two. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I I always call them like false summits, you know, it's, and it's hard not to fall prey to it a little bit because you dream about it. if you, if you're writing a book to be in communication with readers, then obviously getting published and getting a yes, Mm
1: -hmm, um, mm -hmm.
0: especially from a, a major house, it's like, that's the dream come true. But then it happens. And like you say, It is a nice moment. It should be celebrated, maybe for a little longer than thirty-five seconds. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, to each their own, and and then you know, and then like you say, then it's like, well, what's going to happen in the editorial process? What's the cover going to look like? Oh my God, this thing's going to be out in public now. I better fix it up again, and you know, there's all sorts of things to think about. And then the book goes out into the world, and suddenly it's in bookstores. I'm sure you went and visited it, did you not? I mean, the day that it was in bookstores, did you go out and like say hello to it?
1: Well, I um, I did in that I had um one of some, my one of my local bookstores, Book Passage. Um, I love them. They had picked my book as their um, for their book club with their. Um, so they have this book club that you sign up for. And they send you, and they send you like a book every period of time. Um, so they pick a book for the people who are on this club. So they had, they had a lot of books for me to sign, which was wonderful. Um, and then I had an event later that night at another local bookstore that I absolutely love, um, Green Apple Books on the Park. Um, so those are like my two bookstore. Um, you live in the city. Day. Yeah, I live in San Francisco. What
0: part of of the city?
1: Uh, Noe Valley, which is in the um, in the sort of very short hills, right above um, right above the mission. Yeah. Um, I guess that's part of going back to your question about community. So, um, something that I feel something that makes me feel very fortunate is that some of my dearest friends, um, my dearest writer friends, um, live within like a 10, 15 minute walk from me, and so. Um, so that means that often, like if it's like 9 p.m. Um, and my husband and I are finishing dinner, we'll just be like, "Oh, should we text Andy and Colin and see if they want to get a drink?" And like often they? they do. Um, Andy and Colin. <laughs> I'm just mentioning them because they're often are, who we hang out with, like on the spur of the moment at 9:30, 10 p.m. Um, so Colin, they're Andy and Colin Winnett. Um Okay, I've had uh,
0: Colin Wynette on the show.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so Colin's a writer. Andy's also a writer. Um, she used to edit for McSweeney's and The Believer. Um, that's, yeah.
0: a, that's it's Colin's wife? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, well, it's a small world. That's awesome. And I'm like sitting here going, wow, just spur of the moment, 930 or 10 o'clock.
1: We, we, I should mention we don't have children. I was going to say.
0: <laughs> and and you're a night owl, you know? I'm yeah, like wrapping yeah, yeah. it up at that point. But um, So the book gets published. You go through the editorial process. You get to the publication date, launch events, and all that kind of stuff. Um when did you have a sense that it was doing well because the book went on to become a big bestseller.
1: Mm, um I feel as though the first moment that um that it I I started having this sense that maybe well, well because of course like for a book for a novel that is generally classified as literary fiction. Like when my family members ask like, what does literary fiction even mean? I'm like, that's actually just shorthand for like books, like books that don't make very much money. That's what we do. That's like, (laughs) (laughs) that's our forte in the fictional universe. (laughs) um, But I, um, I guess one of the first moments was when I learned um, from my publicist at Riverhead from my publisher that, um, that I was going to be in the New York times um, in May, as like one of four writers to watch. Um, and that was, so that was going to be like two months before the book came out. Um, and I remember like, I was just like at my laptop and I was staring at my, I was just like staring at the screen and I was just getting like chills up and down my body. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, why are you going to profile me for the New York times? Like, that's incredible. That's, that wasn't even something I'd like known to fantasize about. Um, so that might've been one of the first moments
0: where you knew people were excited about the book.
1: Yeah. We're, 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 yeah. Yeah. And I'm very, I feel very thankful, um, for, for that.
0: And do you like when you look at, um, this whole process and in particular, you look at the story that you told and the characters that you created, um, you know, it's, uh, it's obvious that you were using this, at least to some extent to grapple with things, um, that you were uh, up against in your own life. But I'm always curious. Like I'm always fascinated by how you make that creative leap to these characters and this world Mm. and this particular situation and this barefoot uh, cult leader, like padding around this fictional college campus, you know, like, um, like when did you feel like you had built or how do you get to where you feel like you've built a world that can hold all of these things? You know, it's, it's almost like this playground you created for yourself where you get to work, through the, these thematic concerns mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. you, um, are fixed upon. Mm. Like where, what's the, what's the kernel of the story? I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah. Was it a carrot? Was it a single character? Was it the title? Was it a scene?
1: Yeah. Um, the kernel would be that, um, I think I just, I always knew that I would want my first novel to grapple very explicitly with the loss of faith, um, and with what that means. Um, I, because when I, when I lost my faith at 17, part of what compounded my loneliness, um, was that for the first time in my life, I couldn't find any fellowship in books. I couldn't find, and I couldn't find any, any balm for my loneliness in novels. Um, and for the, and because, you know, like as like a bookish geeky teenager i was super used to feeling tragically misunderstood by the world at large right like that's <laughs> like what like bookish geeky teenagers that's what you go through and then you find your people right. with luck and um but i didn't i but i had never not been able to find something in books and for the first time i couldn't because i couldn't find books that grappled with the loss of faith with what it is to lose um something as enormous as your as your god um and and so And since then, I've come across a few more, um, but there really aren't that many. And so I just really wanted to write a book for that girl, that woman, that 17-year-old, that 18-year-old woman who um, felt just like utterly alone in the world. And I wanted her to know she wasn't that alone and she's not that alone now. Um,
0: You should do a podcast about this. (laughs) The Loss of Godcast.
1: (laughs) I do really. um, I love, I mean, I love hearing from readers in general, but I really love talking with people. who also have really complicated relationships with faith, um, who've lost it, or are, are perhaps in the process of losing it, or are trying to figure out what they want to do next. And um, I, I've talked to so many different, like, like ex Mormons, um, ex Jehovah's Witnesses, people who have been in cults, ex Christians of all kinds. Um,
0: yeah, to me, it always felt like somebody handed me like a like a, a suit or a shirt that was like totally not my size, mm. and they're just like wear it. Mm. Come on. It looks great on you. And I'm like, dude, it's yeah. like five sizes too small. Like I can't even move, you know? And it, that's yeah. what it, feel, it felt like. It just didn't fit. And yeah. I think constitutionally, I just have to find my own way.
1: Yeah. And and like there are writers who talk about faith in ways that I find to be incredibly interesting. Um, this is in a very different way, but like I love anytime Clarice Spector talks about God or mentions God, like I find that to be... Powerful and fascinating. Um, Anne Carson is so interesting on faith, Um, but yeah, I I just I wanted to write a book for that, Um, and and I wanted also to convey how wonderful it was to believe in so many ways, how joyful it was. Um, I don't say this lightly. I'm very close to my parents, Um, but I remember for a long time thinking that I would so much rather have lost my parents than lost God, Um, because my parents, because my God, the Christian God, in my understanding of him, promised to restore all loss. I lived a, I lived in a world in which I really believed nobody I loved would die. I wasn't going to die. Um, and so lo- in losing God, I lost everyone else, too. Um, and I lost myself. Like, I lost my idea of myself as an internal being who would go on forever um, with a somewhat intact consciousness. Like, that, that's gone. Um, and I, yeah, so I wanted to write about that. At the very least, um, grief of that magnitude, um, it was it was rich fodder for fiction. You know, it really did keep me going for those 10 years.
0: Is it going to give you another book or you think you're done talking about this?
1: Um, so I've been working on my new novel for three years. Um, and uh, I was really hoping for like...
0: How many pages? You got like 30 pages done?
1: <laughs> no, I, I learned. I learned that I need to spin through early drafts very quickly. So I've gone through like... I've already lost count. I think on purpose. I've already lost count. Um I've gone through two or three full drafts. Um and now I'm on my third or fourth draft. I have no idea. Um and it's centered on two women who are both artists and there's a photographer who becomes personally and then professional, well, pref- professionally and then personally obsessed with a choreographer. Um and with this book I'm very interested in questions of what women are not only allowed but pushed to want. Um And what women are often punished and are judged for wanting um, and the ways in which that can be different for women than for people who aren't women. Um, And so for two years, I tried very hard to keep out all mention of God. Um, And then and then at some point I was just like, you know what, this is really missing something like it's like. There's like a depth that's lacking. I was like, "Oh, <laughs> fuck!" <laughs> and the fucker's sliding back in. <laughs> and
0: there's a character named God. Ah,
1: so he's um so so the loss uh, uh, one of the characters, the photographer, who's the narrator. Um, her complicated relationship with faith is very much part of her art. Um, there was no way to keep it out. It's possible. It's possible I'll never be able to keep it out.
0: Yeah, I don't. I, I guess I have like a hard time like grokking people who have like, it's just no, like no belief. And also like no interest in like asking big questions or like grappling with this. I think there are people who move through their life and they're just like, yeah, I just watched like another Netflix show and went to my job and getting drinks with my friends and like just sort of ignoring mortality and big questions. I mean, am I, Mm. Does that happen? Am I am I wrong? It seems like some people can, are able to just sort of drift through life like that. Maybe that's the way to go, but uh, I can't do it.
1: You know, I I I know people who um, were raised with no with no sort of overarching faith, um, and who are genuinely. Knock on wood. I don't even. I don't even know this why is, I'm knocking I think on wood. Like lamb <laughs> who are genuinely not afraid to die, um, and I find that to be so wild and so fascinating. Um, you think they
0: really? think they really yeah, have no yeah, fear? Yeah, These are
1: people who are very close to me, um, and they're just genuinely not afraid to die. They're like. Well you know, one day death will come and then we'll be gone. We won't even know. Why are you so stressed out about it? And I'm like, that's the terrible part. <laughs> the terrible part is that I won't even know. I would rather know, um, and be miserable than not know. Um but um but I don't think that's a less valid way to um live. Like they're they're also like really lovely, generous people who care about a lot of things, um and do a lot to do with their lives to try to to try to be better, more responsible people, more responsible stewards of their own lives. Um, and yeah, it just, it's, it just seems like a very different way of being that maybe, is very, very foreign to me.
0: Yeah. It's like, or maybe it just feels like more accepting of the mystery. Like, okay, I don't know. I'm not going to know onward. Mm. Let me just deal with stuff that mm. I can, that I can understand. But I'm, I guess I'm kind of, ai am I'm a person who wants to sort of think about that stuff and chew on it. And you know, I, I've only had like the only like genuinely mystical experience I've had. And I've talked about it on this show is a psychedelic experience, uh, from not too long ago, Mm -hmm. um, where it's like so hard to even describe, but when I was in it, I felt like I was connected to some sort of like super extra dimensional, (laughs) like consciousness, super highway. I don't even know how to describe it, but I felt Mm -hmm. like there was like another plane and it was very peaceful and good. But it was a level of like very vast connectivity with all that is Mm. that gave me pause. Mm. Uh, Have you ever had like a genuinely mystical experience where you feel like you uh, were like shot through with light or connected in some powerful way or like you just started like weeping uncontrollably?
1: Mm. I mean, that happened a lot when I was Christian. It did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah but it wasn't it was so not unusual um been like uncontrollably in the midst of like a praise rally um when i was in when i was in high school was was like that was like the default like that <laughs> oh really yeah
0: damn that freaked me out i was like i cannot yeah. believe all this is happening to me so what do you think happened to me you think it was just like
1: I, I'm not going to <laughs> I am definitely not gonna to try to uh, Come on, try to help me I need definitely to understand. not gonna try to uh <laughs> try to diagnose that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh well it's been so fascinating talking with you. Um I congratulate you on this book. I think it's uh super cool that you were able to take all of this stuff and uh like reconstitute it into such a beautiful book. No,
1: oh, thank you. And
0: I wish you luck. Hopefully the next book do you feel like you have a sense of when it's gonna be done?
1: I don't want to even. Want to even.
0: We'll, <laughs> knock on, we'll knock on this, like, whatever this would, if it's wood, um, uh, and hope that, uh, you know, it all goes well, and I wish you luck.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Okay, guys, there you have it. That is R.O. Kwan and her debut novel, The Incendiaries, is available now in trade paperback from Riverhead Books. It's a national bestseller, The Incendiaries. Go get your copy right now. If you want to find R.O. Quan on the internet, her website is ro-kwan.com. You can follow her on Twitter at R.O. Kwan. I believe she's on Instagram too, as well as Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you want to support this show tip your server you can do that at patreon.com slash pod you can also rate and review the show on itunes that helps the cause if you would like to write to me the email address is letters at other and if you want to get the official other people with brad List, the app that app is available wherever apps are available it's free get the official other people app it's a great way to listen Next week on the program uh, is TBD. I have, I have some uh, great interviews here in the can, but I've got to figure out how I'm going to roll them out. I've got to look at the calendar and publication schedules and whatnot. But know that there will be an episode next week, as always. Would I get a bipedal robot made? I mean, if it was invented by, like, Jeff Bezos, I think I would be suspect. You know that robot is watching you. Alexa, exterminate the host.